The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is UCI sociology professor, Andrew Penner. His research focuses on, and I will say them slowly so we can digest them, education, inequality, gender, family, and race. Hmm. He does not shy away from really big topics. It was my pleasure to hear Professor Penner speak at the campus What Matters to Me and Why speaker series last week where he talked about many things that were completely different than my normal way of thinking. He graciously made time in his schedule to talk to us today about his endeavors. So let's just get right into it. Welcome, Professor Penner. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. You're very welcome. Well, please, I always like to start from the beginning. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? So I grew up in a small town called uh, Small for Japan quarter of a million people called Yamagata. Um, and it's, I think, well known for having like a very strong accent and also sort of local dialect that, that's mutually unintelligible uh, to Japanese. So when I was little, I would actually, I think our, the mailman came one time and only spoke the local dialect and my parents only spoke Japanese. I mean, they speak English as well, but uh, so I was translating from the local dialect into Japanese for, for my parents as a kindergartner. Whereabouts in Japan is this small town? It's near Sendai, um, so it's inland from Sendai. Um, so it's uh, on Honshu, the main island, um, but it's uh, you know quite a bit north of Tokyo, maybe you know uh, 350, 400 kilometers or something like this. But it's a big enough place, and it's it's grown since I lived there, you know, going on four decades ago now. And so you know, like there's a, a Shinkansen, uh, the bullet train, right? Uh, they have a, a stop there, and so it's it's not so small that it's you know completely off the beaten track, but it's no, it's maybe like the, the big town in a in a small place or something like this, right? Like yeah. I, don't, I don't know like what the US equivalent might be, like maybe like Little Rock, Arkansas, where you know people from the rest of Arkansas are like you're from the big city and people from the rest of the country like notice that you talk a little different than they do or something like that. I'm I'm not sure. Yeah, interesting. So, you know, how long did you live in Japan? Yeah, so I lived there basically from age three till I graduated high school. Yeah, I was back in the States for a year in second grade and, you know, come back occasionally uh, for summers, just long enough to realize, like, I really didn't fit in in the U.S. And then, you know, back to Japan, where I also didn't fit in, but somehow was more comfortable not fitting in because there was, a, you know, somehow a very prescribed role that I was supposed to fill as the, you know, the gaijin, the, the, the foreigner. And so um, I grew up very comfortable, I guess, in that role of someone who who doesn't fit in. Yeah. Oh. Please tell us about your major influences growing up. It sounds like the Japanese culture definitely was. Yeah. And I should be clear, I went to international schools almost exclusively. I think I went to kindergarten in like a Japanese kindergarten. Um, otherwise, you know, my mom homeschooled me for a year in first grade because we were living in Yamagata and there weren't sort of any English language schools in the area. And then that went really poorly. <laughs> my mom was convinced I was never going to learn to read. Uh, she, she, would, you know, she would ask me these questions like, sat 
rat, cat, you know, motorcycle, right? Like which one is is different? And I would be like, you know, um, sat. sat because it's a verb or something like this, right? You know, or, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't say verb, but I'd be like, you know, because it's it's something you do, and the others are, you know, things or, or something. Yeah. You're just like, oh my gosh, like you don't yeah. like, she's like you can't rhyme. Like this poor kid, like is never gonna learn to read. But yeah, starting second grade, I was back in in the states, and then third grade through sixth grade. I attended basically like a one-room schoolhouse. So I used to commute somebody Yamagata. It's maybe it's over an hour, I think, um, maybe 90 minutes. I'm not sure. On um, public transportation with a, there was an eighth grader who lived in the same town as I did, Yamagata. And we would commute to Sendai together to the little one-room schoolhouse there. Wow, an hour to go to a one-room schoolhouse. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And at the time it was just normal, right? Like it yeah. was just what what you did and sort of talkative third grader that I was I think I probably drove the, that poor eighth grader crazy <laughs> but they they tolerated me very well and were very gracious and yeah and then starting in seventh grade moved down to a sort of boarding school well, a small boarding program I guess uh, but mostly sort of uh, kids who are, who are local to the sort of Tokyo area and it's missionary kids and, and you know and then also like you know there's like a somebody who worked uh, in the diplomatic corps from Colombia, you know, a fair number of you know, Japanese nationals or um, uh, sort of uh, other pastors, kids or stuff, but it's sort of this, you know, small, uh, I mean, for the States, at least small, it was huge for me, right? Like I had like 40 students in my class. I was like, this is amazing. There's so <laughs> many people to be friends with. Um, and, and, also, and also at the same time, like, like, you know, felt very out of place because I had never, you know, really sort of, been in a context like that so it's like you know the, both the like anxiety of being like how do I fit in and and also the like oh my gosh there's so many people who are kind of like me um so that was that was really fantastic did you always know you would go to college yes because I really didn't have any choice <laughs> uh, so let me explain I, I grew up in you know prior to going to Japan you know my mom talks about when we were you know living in Portland and you know they would sort of uh, you know, I think my mom says something about like, you know, one time we went to the, the clinic, you know, for well baby visit or, um, uh, you know, sort of prenatal checkup for my brother when my mom was pregnant with my brother. And, and she said to the you know, person checking her in, and she says, you know, we're, we're not poor, we just don't have any money, which I think is a really sort of, you know, it's something I talk about in my class, right? Like sort of, you know, unpacking that statement and like what that means. And, but I think we didn't have a lot of money growing up. I um, mean, you know, I remember having conversations in high school about like taking shorter showers and like, you know, basically we're going to be eating more tofu because this is you know, the protein that we can afford. And yet, you know, almost everyone in my school by, by virtue of being, you know, a missionary kid's school, the, the vast majority of people in the school had parents who had or had a, a parent at least who had you know some kind of seminary degree, right? So mm. typically a BA, and then you know some kind of like an MDiv or something like that. So it was very strange, right? Like it was like on the one hand, you know, like it was when we would go to churches, like you know we would often go. They'd have what they called the missionary barrel, right? Where it's just like it's kind of you know it's like I guess maybe there probably were thrift stores. Um, and, and I just didn't know about them, but like, this was like a free thrift store for missionaries, right? Like you could just like go through and like take whatever you needed. Um, and so, um, you know, it's like, you know, you're getting clothes from there and yet, you know, like your parents have, you know, some, you know, post BA degree oftentimes, right? So education was sort of normalized, even though it didn't come with the, you know, and it came with you know, some kind of maybe status as like, you know, it's like, oh, you're the missionaries, you know, you're the missionary kids, like you must be super holy. And you're kind of like, uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, like it, yeah, it sort of didn't translate into the, the sort of socioeconomic well-being or, or sort of, you know, money that, that oftentimes accompanies that. So, you know, and, and for those of us who were international, we um, were in Japan on a, uh, on a dependent visa, right? So we were there because of our parents' work. And so it wasn't, possible really or at least maybe it was possible but it, it wasn't known as possible to stay right like you know when we you know turned whatever age it was expected that we would come back to the states mm -hmm. um, or you know or to norway or you know europe or you know korea or wherever we you know were you know our country of, of 
our parents' mm-hmm. country of origin. Like mm-hmm. we had grown up in Japan, most of us, but um, mm-hmm. uh, we'd go back to, you know, wherever our parents were from and, and go to, you know, start our lives there. Um, gotcha. And for most of us, that would mean, you know, going to college because, again, because our parents were, were relatively well-educated, but also it was sort of a, a way to kind of ease that transition. And in my class, you know, this was a you know, graduating class of roughly 40. There was one person who didn't go to, to college right away. And it was kind of scandalous among us, right? Like, it was like, this person is going to like work making, um, like they have like straw mats, the tatami mats, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this friend was, you know, apprenticing themselves to, you know, to tatami asan, right? And make, learning how to make tatami. And, and yeah, that was, I think, yeah, really fascinating to me that mm-hmm. that was, you know, but like at the, at the time, like, it was just like, you know, our, all our minds were blown. Like, you know, how can you not go to college? Like, mm-hmm. this is like what you're supposed to do. Um, mm. You know, and many people would not, I mean, it was a rough transition back to some culture that, you know, supposedly was yours, but that you hadn't grown up with. I don't know that, you know, we all finished, but at least, you know, it sort of gave you some friends and a place to be and a thing to do as you basically reintegrated back into wherever it was you were supposedly from. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI sociology professor Andrew Penner, and right now we're following his life and career progression. How do you pick the University of Chicago to go to? (laughs) Um, So apparently, when I was a little kid, uh, we were driving by and I pointed at it and I was like, I'm going to go there when I get big. And like, everyone just kind of laughed, like, yeah, like, no, it's, it's, um, uh, it's, it's not, that, that's not how college works. Right. Um, <laughs> I, had, I, had, I don't remember that at all, but like that was something I only learned about later, but you know, from halfway around the world, I sent, you know, a handful of places that I thought I might be interested in. I think it was faxes. Cause like this was, or maybe it was faxes or I think it was faxes. Um, cause this was really before email had sort of come into, you know, to be like a major force. And, you know, basically, you know, my letter started, you know, I'm an American citizen, you know, living abroad, you know, finishing my education in Japan. And, you know, I'm interested in, you know, basically like what kind of financial aid you have. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And inevitably I would get a fax back, like dear foreign student. Right. And it was just kind of like, okay, like, like you just saw I was in Japan. Like you didn't even see that, like I'm a U.S. citizen. Right. You know, in Chicago didn't, uh, you know, they, they did sort of right away sort of understand you know, my situation. The other thing, you know, I remember sort of sitting in the, you know, we had like a college counselor or, I mean, they actually, you know, weren't the, like the counselor, they did all sorts of other stuff too. But, you know, one of the things that they did was they, you know, talked to people about what college they might go to. And they had, you know, one of those big books that has, you know, 400 colleges or something like this. And so you're, you know, flipping through and there's like a page on each. And I remember the page about University of Chicago it said something about, you know, like it's, I don't know if they, they talked about like it's where fun goes to die, but they, they said, you know, um, there, there was this, you know, cheer that they had at like a football game, which I think I, I, like when I was there, I accidentally wandered past a football game once and watched mm-hmm. for about two minutes. But the cheer goes something like Thucydides, Themistocles in the Peloponnesian War, X squared, Y squared, H2SO4, what for, where for, who the hell are we cheering for, go Maroons. Um, <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is my place. Like these are my people, right? <laughs> uh-huh. like, they're like clearly like nerdy nerds like myself <laughs> and yet they don't take themselves too seriously right like mm. they like can laugh at themselves and like that was really important for me like one of the things I actually did as a senior there that was really important to me I became uh, good friends with um, a student who had come uh, from India and I think I, I'll, I'll forget the details but like was like a, a quite accomplished uh, snooker player, right? So snooker, I guess, was like billiards, but like harder. We would, you know, play, you know, billiards or pool together. And I was horrible at it, right? I mean, and, and, and the point of playing for me was to do something that I was horrible at, right? Because I think so often in contemporary society, we try to only do the things that we're good at, right? Like there's something really profoundly liberating about embracing something that you're bad at and doing something that you're bad at and just leaning into it and like laughing at yourself and like just like not taking yourself too seriously right and recognizing that like it's okay to mess up and like you know like half the not half the time but like you know 
it would not be uncommon in one of our, you know, games for me to like, you know, launch the cube ball, like flying off the table or something mm -hmm. like this. And, mm -hmm. you know, like basically I won if I managed to get a single ball in uh, one of the pockets before, you know, my friend ran the table. Right. And mm -hmm. so this was like, you know, one of the things that like Zubin and I would do for, for fun, you know, in that little cheer, I saw that, right. Like I saw that, you know, people would, would be able to just laugh and have fun, you know, like, obviously, like, you know, we take ourselves really seriously. And, you know, like, you know, I kind of joke, like, I, I never went to undergrad, I just went to grad school twice, you know, because as an undergrad, you know, you're taking classes with grad students. Is that unique to sociology? I don't know. And I don't, it might have changed since I was there. But, you know, like, our undergrad stats class was basically, you know, the same as the graduate stats class. And the only difference was like, you know, they had more interesting questions on their exam, but it was like mm. the same exam. Right. And mm. then it was like at the bottom of the exam, some of the grad student questions. Mm. So I would just be like, I'm going to do these ones too, because, mm. you know, I was that kind of a nerd. Um, actually, one of my really good friends was a grad student at the time. And it was one of my, actually was the TA in my first ever like intro to social class. And like, we still keep in touch and, and work in some of the same areas. And I, I cite Catherine's work all the time. And um, and Catherine cites my work and, you know, follow each other on Twitter and stuff. And yeah, so I think that was, it was a, sort of a unique experience, I think, as, a, as an undergrad, you know, being a small major, a relatively small major and, and interacting with, you know, with, mm -hmm. with people that you're going to go on to be colleagues with. Right. Well, yeah. Do you remember that moment when you decided this is what I want to do? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah. So um, briefly was, say that. Absolutely. So I actually, I went in, I was a big math nerd in high school. Um, and I thought, you know, I would do math and physics. And so I, I you know, had taken uh, AP Calculus AB as a junior, um, which was unusual at my high school. And then I took um, BC. And I think like my friends and I who did this were like the first people to take uh, AP Calculus BC at, at our high school. And so like in our minds, like we were like all big math nerds. And then I, I get to University of Chicago and um, you know, I'm sitting in this, you know, honors calculus class, you know, thinking I'm going to be a math major. And uh, it's actually, the professor was uh, Andrei Okunukov, who would, you know, later go on to win a Fields Medal. But at that time uh, was a lecturer, I, I believe. And this is like, not something I'm proud of, right? But I remember thinking like, you know, in all my classes, what I would try to do is I try to understand how the professor would think. Um, and so, you know, I tried to be like, okay, if I was this professor, like, here's how I would approach this, right? And, and I couldn't, right? I couldn't understand how, you know, Okunokov, you know, thought about, you know, these problems. And it just, it didn't make sense to me, right? And I remember thinking, and this is the part I'm not proud of, is like, you know, here's a lecture, right? Like, here, like, even as like a first year student at Chicago, like somehow I had like internalized this hierarchy. And, you know, if I can't even understand how this lecturer thinks about the world, I'm never going to make it. Like, this is not, you know, I'm not cut out for this. Um, and that, like, while I think ultimately, like, was a good decision for me not to try to stay in math, it was, you know, the way I got there is, is not great, right? Like, you know, sort of this, like, very, like, you know, hierarchical, like, elitist kind of thinking. And then, and then it was kind of hilarious, because, you know, in my time at Berkeley, you know, I got some you know, email blast about, you know, Okunokov wins Fields Medal or something like this. And I was like, wait, I know that name. And I looked and I was like, oh, sure enough, it's, it's, you know, it's my, you know, and I think I lasted like maybe two or three weeks in, in, in honors calc before I, I, I swapped out. But yeah, and then I think like the, you know, the chair of the department at Berkeley was saying something about how, you know, the way Okunokov thinks about, you know, these things is like, unlike anybody else. And I was like, oh, well, it's not just me who can't understand how Okunokov <laughs> thinks about it. But I felt somehow, you know, vindicated, you know, uh, however many years later, but it, but also, you know, somehow convicted, right, of like remembering that, that, you know, sort of elitist thinking that I'm not proud of. Gotcha. So, you then go on to UC Berkeley for your grad degree. Are there different kinds of sociologists, you know, or are you in a specific area or is it like that? Yeah. So, and I, and I should say like, the reason I ended up choosing sociology is, you know, I sort of grown up always feeling like I didn't fit in trying to understand like what different places expected of me and, and you know, trying to like, you know, understand society, you know, why is it that like, you know, when we come back to visit churches in Kansas, they're very different than churches in San Jose. And that's very different from, you know, uh, the church I went to in, in Yamagata, right? So that was sort of, it felt like a place that I naturally fit in. And, you know, and I loved, you know, sort of the you know, statistics side of things and like, 
the idea, you know, in, in high school, like my friends and I would go round and round about, are people with more money happier, right? And, you know, we'd sort of think like, oh, you know, like, yeah, like you don't, you aren't stressed all the time. And then other people would be like, yeah, but like, you know, basically like the more money, more problems, you know, hypothesis. And so you, you sort of go back and forth about this. And now, like for the first time as an undergrad, like, you know, here was the general social survey and we could, you know, just look at like, you know, you ask people, how happy are you? And, and then you, you know, correlate that with, you know, how much money they have. And you can sort of see like, oh, like it turns out that like the people that, you know, tend to have more money actually say, you know, tend to say that they're happier. And like, mm. like I can answer this question that I've had for forever. Like, this is amazing. And so that for me was very much, uh, it, was, it was, you know, completely eye-opening. Like I had never heard of sociology prior to college. And like the idea of like being a professor was, you know, I didn't know any professors really growing up. And so this was sort of, you know, eye-opening to me. You know, I ended up at, at grad school because I came in with a lot of AP credits and, you know, tested out of a year of Japanese. And so I figured, you know, I could finish, you know, college in, in three years, you know, if I, you know, picked a major quickly and, and you know, worked hard. And, and so I, you know, I switched, you know, pretty quickly to sociology to, you know, you know, because I loved it, but also because like, you know, I was good at it and, and mm-hmm. you know, wanted to pick a major quickly so I could get out of college and, and stop paying. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, they had a BAMA program where you could, you know, spend a fourth year and basically you know, graduate with a master's. And so I, I talked to my, my counselor and my counselor was like, well, you, you know, do you know Andy Abbott? Go talk to Andy Abbott. And so I went to talk to Andy about this, you know, because Andy was the department chair. And, and basically, you know, Andy said, Andy was my, you know, my intro teacher, right? And so, you know, what Andy said was like, if you go to grad school, like you can get paid. And I was just like, my mind was blown. <laughs> I was like, wait, like, you know, and, and, you know, like grad students don't get paid a lot, but it was more money than I had ever seen in my life, right? Like, uh, it was, I, felt, uh-huh. I felt rich, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was sort of how I ended up in grad school. And and, and I wasn't going to apply um, to Berkeley. Like, and, and Andy basically was like, you know, you know, what are your, what's your grades? You know, great. Like, you'll get into Chicago. So you should only apply to places that you'd prefer to go to Chicago. Um, so I was like, okay, well, you know, maybe I'll apply to Wisconsin because, you know, they're sort of good at the kinds of like inequality stuff that I wanted to do. And, you know, one of my letter writers, you know, had spent some time at Harvard and was like, no, you need to apply to Harvard too. And I was like, you know, rolling my eyes, fine, I'll apply to Harvard. And I think Andy was like, you should apply to Berkeley also. You know, I don't know, you know, like, yeah, Berkeley, like, you know, Berkeley has a reputation for being very qualitative, you know, um, and sort of strong in ethnography and that was like, you know, I, at that point, I thought I didn't want anything to, you know, it was not like my skill set and, and not what I was interested in. So I was like, you know, but, you know, Andy told me I needed to apply to Berkeley. So fine, I'll apply to, to Berkeley. And so then I went out to, to this visit weekend and, and was, was just charmed, right? Like it's one of the things I loved about Chicago was you had this sense that like you could walk up to anyone and ask them, like, what do you think about Kant? And like, if they didn't have a good answer, they would be like deeply ashamed right and like I don't have a good answer and I'm still like somehow secretly ashamed by this right and and like Berkeley had that kind of a intellectual quirkiness to it where it felt like a place where like people really cared deeply about ideas and at the same time Chicago was like super intense like I'm not sure I could have survived uh, that much longer there Um, but Berkeley felt like kind of laid back and I was like this feels like a good fit for me um and so, yeah, so I, you know, against all of my, you know, everything I would have imagined, you know, sort of fell in love with Berkeley and, and ended up at Berkeley. And, and, you know, as a grad student, it was, you know, I think being a grad student is always alienating, which is, it's funny, right? Like on paper, there's nothing about grad school that should be alienating. You get to talk to some of the leading experts in the world about this and what you're interested in. And like, that should be really invigorating, but almost everybody, I think, inevitably finds it a little bit alienating. And I think that for me was also the case. And, you know, I think because it was, you know, like, you know, people sort of looked at me like, you know, yeah, but you're doing this, like, you know, you're using numbers, like, you know, that must mean like you're, you know, uh, a bad person somehow, right? Like, you're, like if you're like doing really cutting edge stuff, you know, you'd be doing, you know, this like ethnographic work. And so I was just kind of like, okay, like, I'm just going to like sit and like, you know, do my work and like, you know, talk to Trond and like, try to like, ignore all the people that are telling me I'm a horrible person and just, you know, do my thing. So yeah, that was sort of how I ended up in, in grad school. When you get your PhD, what year is that about? 2008. 2008. So is that when you came to UCI? 
Yeah, that was when I started at UCI. And, and I should note, like, for me, I had never heard of UCI prior to, I, it's not true. One of my office mates had gotten a job here, um, but I, I didn't really have a strong sense of where Irvine was. I think I sort of thought it was more inland, right? I didn't realize it was you know, right on the coast. Um, I had never been to Orange County that I am aware of prior to that. But, you know, they were hiring the, the year I was on the market. And, mm. you know, UCI was the only job interview I went on where I didn't think at some point in the middle of the interview, I was about going to burst into tears. And I'm not sure like what that means exactly. Uh, maybe it was my first one. And so I was less tired or, 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 yeah, but I think, you know, it speaks a little bit to the, um, the collegiality of the department and of, of people here. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show, and my guest today is 14-year UCI sociology professor Andrew Penner. He's just talking about getting hired at UCI, and coming up in a moment, he makes a reference to the academy, which means the same thing as academia. Now back to the interview. I mean, it's not easy to get any kind of sociology job. It's not easy. Yeah, it's not. Um, I wasn't convinced I was going to go into the academy. In fact, I had talked to a lot of people that had gone into industry and, you know, they offered to help me do that. And so I applied for jobs with the thought that, you know, if it didn't work out in the academy, I would pursue something in industry. And, you know, to be honest, like I I still think that doing some work in in industry, you know, would be sort of a fun compliment. I think it, you know, helps when you're providing advice to students, you know, if you've had a little experience and, and that's not something I would you know, completely rule out. Can we talk a little bit about your research areas like inequality? What, what have you discovered? Can we talk about it like that? What have you discovered about that? Yeah. So probably the work that I'm best known for is around sort of how we categorize each other. Right. And so like I do a lot of work on like racial categorization and like how we categorize people by race and like what that means. And then more recently, I've started thinking about categories more broadly and thinking about, you know, what does it mean that our, you know, our current education system works to categorize each other, right? So, or, you know, categorize our, ourselves. And, and so, you know, we come up through this system. And I think, you know, I talked about this a little bit in my What Matters in Me and Why talk, you know, um, you know, my brother was categorized as disabled, right? And so... Um, and what was his issue? Yeah, so he has a, or had, uh, he passed away uh, about a year ago, a mutation to a gene DX30. And so among other things, you know, if you were to meet Daniel, Daniel, you know, was in a wheelchair. Um, Daniel couldn't talk uh, and um, ate through a, a, you know, a, a gastrostomy tube. Uh, and it's hard to know, like communication was a challenge, right? So like, you know, sometimes, you know, you got a sense for what Daniel was thinking from eye contact or from, you know, smiling or from vocalizing, like, you know, uh, one time my dad was, you know, changing one of Daniel's uh, diapers and, you know, was saying something about how, you know, Anna, my sister is off at college and Andrew's in grad school. And I bet sometimes you just wish you could get out of here. And, and Daniel started going like, uh, like vocalizing like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and like when Daniel gets excited, sometimes he'd sort of move his head in a, a sort of a circle um, and, and sort of, you know, you could tell that Daniel was sort of very was responding to this very strongly. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and that was sort of this like very you know, beautiful and poignant moment where it was, it was very clear uh, what Daniel was wanting. Um, but, you know, oftentimes like when we were trying to like ask Daniel, you know, what book would you like us to read next? Or, you know, what movie or, you know, what, what art would you like on your wall? You know, sometimes like, I think, you know, there was like one uh, poster at Ikea of like a red dot, uh, dog on a red background and like it was clear Daniel liked that one from eye contact but beyond that maybe Daniel didn't have preferences and that's why we couldn't tell but like yeah communication I think was really difficult for us Mm. Uh, we didn't know how to communicate with Daniel well yeah and so I think that was like the the big challenge Um, and yeah so I know I think I understand, I know, I think 
that when you hear the term inclusive excellence, I understand that you think that that is a, a conflict of terms. Can, can you explain that? Yeah. So I love that we here at UCI are so committed to being inclusive, right? So mm-hmm. I think like inclusion, you know, given you know, some of the background I shared, inclusion is something that is like really fundamental to sort of who I am and, and what I value, right? I really, I want to create a community where, where we can all belong. Um, but the language of excellence, I find really deeply frustrating, right? You know, it's a, it's a merit-based concept, right? You know, and the idea is like, like, if you think about the word, like, you know, to excel, it means you're doing better than somebody else, right? Like, it doesn't make sense for us to all be excelling equally, right? Like, you know, likewise, it doesn't make sense for us to all have the same amount of merit. It only makes sense in some kind of a, a hierarchical formulation, and so like this hierarchy that's embedded in excellence, I find really troubling, right? Because if you look at, for example, the UC Regents language, right, on this, they, you know, they say something to the effect of like noting the university's commitments um, to the full realization of its historic promise to recognize and nurture merit, talent, and achievement. And then they sort of go on. And you know, the acute need to remove barriers to the recruitment, retention, and advancement of talented students, faculty, and staff, right? And I think about what it means to be talented or what it means to, you know, be seen as having merit or, you know, to achieve, right? Like Daniel's not someone who would have ever achieved or been judged as having talent or merit in the ways that the university values. And so, while inclusion is something that's really important to me, you know, I, I struggle with the fact that the university is somehow definitionally ableist, right? Uh, it, it celebrates excellence by excluding my brother, right? And that I think is, is a hard truth to, to sort of make peace with. Mm. It struck me when I heard you the other day, because it's like, it, it seems like, that's what our culture is based on. And, you know, from, from sports, you know, you have the team that wins and the team that loses and we celebrate unless it's close to the members of the losing team. We, they don't get much press or acknowledgement. It doesn't seem like. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. No, it's a huge issue. I think it's astounding that our dominant metaphor for how we organize our corporate life, right? Like our life together as a community is competition, right? You know, how we think about how we're gonna solve society's biggest challenges. It's like, well, we're gonna, we're gonna set up a competition to you know, find who can you know, best solve climate change. And like, I think really what a lot of these kinds of, you know, if you think about you know, like climate change, you think about you know, populism, you know, uh, the pandemic, like one of the things that they all require is trust, right? Like at some fundamental level is trusting each other. And competition is not, in my estimation, very good at helping us trust each other more. And so I think it's, it's it, to, to my mind, the, the sort of primacy that we give competition in our, in our life together is, is somehow fundamentally misguided. You know, I think a lot about this, you know, you brought up sports, you know, I, I, I like playing games and I, in particular, I like playing collaborative games, you know, cooperative games. Cause I think they help retrain us, right? Like they help teach us that, you know, how to trust. Right. And you know, I think one of the things I mentioned in my, it came up in the Q and a, what matters to me and why is, um, you know, that, you know, uh, after my brother passed, I, I, um, you know, was looking for something that would, you know, help me find joy again. And so I started playing Dungeons and Dragons again. And, you know, I, I love, I love that as, as an act of collaborative storytelling, right? Like, you know, I sort of stumbled into this like little corner of, of the world uh, in, in that sort of, you know, tabletop role-playing game space uh, where there's this, you know, community of, people that, you know, it's, they, it's called an actual play where they like basically make a podcast um, of themselves playing Dungeons and Dragons together, right? And so um, it's this little group called, you know, the Faith Forge Academy. And it's this little, like wonderful community. 
of people who create a narrative together, right? They build a world together and you can, you can sort of watch the trust being generated. You can you know, watch as they learn to trust each other and, and to build the world and to you know, react to each other and to you know, give each other space to shine. And you know, it's, it's improv storytelling, creating a narrative, learning how to trust. And this to me feels, and working together to, to overcome challenges, right? And this to me feels much more wholesome than like AYSO <laughs> or something like that, where it's like, you know, it's like, you know, like you won the other team lost, right? Like, uh, or, you know, like youth softball, like we used to go to like some friends, uh, you know, they had a kid that was, you know, elementary school age and they were, you know, playing softball and like, like, you know, like the parents were already talking about like who was going to get a scholarship and not, and like that kind of competition just felt stifling. It felt oppressive, right? Like it's, mm. It's, um, it's not the kind of thing that encourages growth in my estimation, right? And it's not, it's not I don't think, teaching us to, to solve the pressing challenges that we face. And I'll also note, I think, you know, a lot of what I love about Dungeons and Dragons is, is the same thing that I love about faith, right? Like, you know, growing up, you know, it's like this community like again it's like done well and I think oftentimes it's not done well like it's about you know community fostering trust and grace and um working together yeah at its best right like at its worst it's it's horrible um but at its best I think it's that and so I think you know we as a society need to think about how do we and 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 to be clear like there are a lot of churches or you know faith organizations um and a lot of you know dungeons and dragons groups that are about you know, growing or competing or whatever. And like that, I don't, you know, that is, you know, not any healthier than competition elsewhere. But I think like there's a model for what that can look like, you know, how we can organize our life together that is about, about more than competition, right? Like I don't, I hate competing with people. Like my least favorite part of my job is writing grants and applying for jobs because those are the parts where if I win, somebody else loses. And I want to be able to have my winning or like my doing well also be good for other people. And I want when other people do well for that to mean good things for me, right? As opposed to, you know, it being, you know, being locked in some kind of zero sum competition. How's that for what happens when you ask a sociologist to come back? (laughs) (laughs) I think at some point during your presentation, you were talking about how, you know, the top schools or, you know, schools in general, they have GPA requirements or they have certain requirements and that you felt that that was wrong, that it should be more perhaps of a, of a lottery. And I was attracted by your humanity, but at the same time, I was like, well, if you, you suddenly have a, you know, a top university, you know, you could call it excellent university. Well, now all of a sudden, it's not going to be a top university if you don't have those requirements. And I guess, you know, I take it farther, I start to think, well, do I want the surgeon or, you know, the doctor that I'm dealing with? Do I want that to be a a top doctor? Do I want it to be at best an average doctor? Do do you know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. yeah. So let's unpack it. Um, That's a great question. So I think one question is how we define excellence, right? So currently we define excellence based on selectivity, right? So we have this idea that the most selective university is the best university, right? But we could define excellence in so many other ways, right? We could define excellence by, you know, the university that teaches people the most or that, you know, creates the most lasting friendships or, that helps people encounter those who are completely different from others that they had encountered prior to that, right? These are all ways, depending on how you think about the role of education in our life, that we could define excellence. The people in the field of education talk about, or in our book, this is sort of our gloss on how, how people think about this, but you can think about sort of three competing paradigms that govern education, right? 
One is self-actualization, right? That like everyone should have the chance to sort of flourish and become their best self. Another is efficiency, right? And this is sort of, you know, this idea of, you know, getting matched up to, you know, into this sort of hierarchical system. So we're taking the best people and we're putting them in the best jobs, right? And we want to sort of do this as efficiently as possible. And a third is solidarity, right? That we're, we're trying to create a community out of, you know, disparate individuals. And depending on which of these paradigms you want to uh, give primacy to, you're going to organize your educational system in very different ways. And I think I would argue that currently we neglect solidarity. We, you know, are, have a very sort of efficiency-oriented uh, education system, and to a lesser degree, I think, followed by uh, self-actualization, and, and then solidarity sort of brings up the rear, right? And I think, you know, this is, you know, one of the things you see when you look at, you know, something like the, you know, the events of the January 6th insurrection is that, you know, there's a lot of, of angst and a lot of people really feel like they don't belong, right? And, and if you look at, you know, what's taught in our schools, you know, people in many parts of the country are, you know, explicitly trying to make sure that their curriculum doesn't reflect the experiences of some of our students, right? Like, mm -hmm. That's bananas, right? I'm trying to use radio appropriate language. Um, <laughs> it's bananas. Um, you know, it's just almost unfathomable that we would like have like so little of a sense of solidarity that we would go out of our way to ensure that other people's experiences aren't reflected in our, you know, social studies or our, you know, our textbooks about, you know, who we as a people are. And I think that's the kind of society that you end up with if you neglect the sort of uh, role of schools in creating solidarity. So I think, yes, like we can think about, like, do we want our surgeons to have skills? Yes. You know, does it matter that they, you know, scored a certain level or that they took, you know, calculus as a junior or that they almost certainly not, right? Like, like one, one way I think about it is like, you know, I, I can imagine, you know, one of the, like, you know, let's say like, you know, we did our admission based on a lottery and we took, you know, uh, you know, sort of everyone that, um, you know, and this is, this is not the world I, I want to live in because like even here, like, you know, I'm saying like, you know, we take everyone who, you know, meets some sort of like basic level of threshold, right? So even here, there's some exclusion happening that I, I would like to see done away with. And we can talk more about what that would look like in a second. But if we were to just say, let's take, you know, everyone, you know, rather than taking, you know, the quote unquote best people that, you know, defined by, you know, the metrics that society says are best, um, you know, people would be like, well, but you know, then they won't come out knowing as much. And my response is like, well, no, we might actually have to teach them stuff, <laughs> um, right? You know, um, yeah, one of my, I think you know, I mentioned Andy Avett earlier, you know, one of the things that Andy said that Andy loved about Chicago is that Chicago, you actually teach people things as opposed to, you know, some of the other elite schools where it's like, you know, basically nobody learns anything because they already come in knowing everything, right? And it's, you're just sort of, you know, putting the, you know, elite stamp of approval on them. And I think, you know, education, Education, you know, even when it's about, you know, that kind of exclusion should still be about teaching, right? And so I think there are ways to decouple the skills from the status. And I think that's, you know, that's an easy, I mean, it's not easy to do, but that's easier to do than some of the things I would like to see done, right? Um, you know, the kinds of things, you know, I think you know, if we think about what does the, the logic of self-actualization say, right? I, I look at, you know, there are programs for students that have intellectual disabilities at uh, both UC Davis and UCLA. I would love to see something like that happen at UCI, in part for solidarity, right? Because it's like, it shapes our understanding of who we as a community are. And, and I think that it does so in really healthy and important ways. And it, you know, it's, it's a little bit bizarre, right? Like I remember thinking this in college, like I see almost no small children and, you know, like I don't see any really old people either because like, you know, 
the oldest people I'm seeing are like my professors who are you know, about to retire. And the youngest people I'm mostly seeing are, you know, freshmen, right? Or like, you know, if I have a job, you know, like I used to teach at this, you know, a neighborhood school, like that was where I would, that was, you know, as a college student, like that was where I would encounter people that were younger than 18, right? And so like making colleges reflect who we are as a community more broadly, I think is really healthy, right? And, and so thinking about what that looks like for, you know, uh, people like Daniel, I think, like, I think our world is richer for Daniel being in it. And I think that our university would be richer for Daniel being in it. But right now that can't happen, right? And so, you know, what would it look like to make that happen? And if you think about from a self-actualization framework, right? You know, I think the argument would be like, we learn to be our best selves when we encounter lots of other people who are different than us. And also, you know, maybe, again, it's hard to know for Daniel what this would have looked like, but maybe Daniel would have benefited from, from being a part of the UCI community too. Um, but right now, you know, you know, in the California master plan, right? The sort of idea that like, you know, it's the top eight that, you know, are sort of guaranteed admission to, to the UC system. Um, it's, you know, it, it's built on its exclusion of the majority of the population, right? And that, that feels not great, right? Like, I think that should give us pause. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest today is UCI sociology professor Andrew Penner, whose research work looks at ways to improve our society. It is powerful food for thought. So there are only a certain number of spaces, right? I mean, if you, there are going to be people excluded. Is that... If I may, you know, I'll please, let, I'm happy please. Okay, yeah. Um, so uh, I think, you know, if I may, um, it's it becomes problematic when we use our universities and our education system to say these are the people that have value, right? Like in contemporary society, education has a, a virtual monopoly over the creation of merit, right? And this is why. You know, even elite families work so hard to um, have their children have certain signifiers that they are members of the elite, right? Because it, it's not that, you know, their kids' economic well-being depends on it, but it's that, you know, it signifies that they have merit and value, right? And I think that's where the problem comes in. When we, when we say we're going to take the fact that, you know, we are the arbiters of merit and value, um, I mean, it's one of the places where the problem comes in, right? It's not the only place, but it's, it's a key place, I think, for me. Um, because of our role in assigning, you know, who does and doesn't get to be valued by society, when we do so in a way that systematically, in, you know, excludes, you know, certain people and only includes people that, you know, uh, think in a particular way or, you know, act in a particular way or come from a particular background, you know, that it then who we are valuing as a society doesn't include all of us. And, and honestly, like, you know, this is again, like I'm gonna sound like a sociologist here, but like I would rather live in a world where that hierarchy didn't exist, right? Where, where we weren't using education to assign value, but we're instead using education to, you know, train surgeons or to, you know, train musicians or, you know, give people the skills that they want to, to get, right? And, and I think right now, that's not what our education system is doing, right? That's, um, it's doing, I mean, it, it is training people, but it is doing so many other things that I think are, are really corrosive to our, our communal life. Mm. Yeah, there's, there's a, a, a deep truth that I hear you talking about, Professor. You know, but you know, part of my brain wants to keep going. Like, well, hold it. Even with the arts, you know, if it's the, the acting school, well, you audition and they oh, take. Absolutely. 
it's hierarchies all the way yeah there's the expression it's turtles all the way down it's hierarchies all the way up like there is i i think almost no space um in our communal life that is not viewed of in terms of merit right like even you know, I, I thought it was uh, a great question in my What Matters in Me and Why talk, but, you know, someone was asking about, you know, can we, can we basically take grace and make it part of our merit-based understanding? And the answer is yes. Like, we could even take, you know, because I think, like, you know, you see, like, religious communities where it's, like, you know, you get, you know, five grace points today, and, like, you, you are not being very gracious, and so, like, <laughs> you are, you know, you're gonna, you know, have to, right, and so it's, like, you're, like, you're using merit to like talk about grace and like it's very much in our nature to to even introduce this like language of hierarchy and competition and merit in in places like you know grace you know or belonging or you know all these kinds of places where we might hope that it would it would not be right um Mm. so i do think it is you know, this is one of the things I think I mentioned in my What Matters to Me and Why talk is I'm not sure that we, from where we stand currently, have the collective imagination to really conceptualize what the world that we want to live in looks like, which is like a very like pessimistic or maybe cynical thing to say that like, I'm not sure like how to even imagine our way out of where we are currently, but I, I do think we can get better at imagining what this world might look like. Right. And I think that by moving a little bit towards it and by learning how to, you know, create categories that are less toxic, I think these are ways in which we can maybe get to a place from which we can imagine what the world that we want to live in looks like. Aren't there elementary schools where you're describing, you know, where it's, I'm trying to remember what the names of them are. Do you know yeah. off- it's a great question. I, I would argue that like insofar as elementary schools feed into the rest of the system, like at some point they like, you know, even like the Waldorf school. Yeah. That's what the, I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But even they are part of a system. So it's, you know, it's, it's much more self-actualization focused, right? It's like they, they lean into the self-actualization side and away from the efficiency side. But they do so in some ways using an efficiency logic at some point, right? Because it's like, you know, do this and like your kids will thrive and like, you know, they'll be okay. Like they'll get into these elite schools eventually too, Mm, right? Yeah, Um, right, right. It still interfaces with this, but you are absolutely correct in identifying that as a place where the efficiency logic is less prevalent. And one of the points that we've made in our work is the observation that it's not seen as problematic at all to have a tiered system of UCs and CSUs and community colleges. And this is understood as like normal and the students who are at these places deserve it because they've earned it. And if you were to take that same logic and apply it to high school students, we might be like mildly uncomfortable with it. There is a a color-coded ID card program that sort of gave you know people you know gold and platinum and and you know regular id cards based on their level of achievement and that like made some people like really uncomfortable if you were to do the same thing with you know elementary school kids like you know i think people would really start to squirm and if you were to take newborns and put a platinum bracelet or a this you know baby is going to go to community college and so they're somehow like less valuable like then people would be like no, you are not allowed to do that. Like you cannot talk that way about babies, right? Mm. Like there's like something about babies and and like younger children where it's like, we aren't allowed to categorize them. Like society like recoils when we categorize them in the same way, right? Mm. But you know, as sociologists and and social scientists, you can draw a pretty straight line from the, you know, educational and, and familial experiences of of students to where they're going to end up in society, right? And so we are categorizing them already. Like we're placing them on these categories, you know, whether it's, you know, remedial or their reading group or whatever, but we just are pretending that we aren't, right? So like a lot of people talk about their experience with elementary school reading groups where it's, you have like the, the blue birds and the red birds and the yellow birds. And the idea is it's 
supposed to be opaque, right? Mm -hmm. It's supposed to be the case that it's not clear, you know, who's advantaged and, and, and who's not. But, you know, you know, a lot of the kids, you know, will say like, yeah, but like, it's really, you know, like I knew that like, you know, those are like, we're the smart kids and those kids are the ones that are struggling, right? And I think you hear the value judgments there. And, and, and even though it's supposed to be opaque because we're not comfortable saying that, you know, the yellow birds are better people than the, the blue birds, you know, we are somehow comfortable saying that the people that went to this elite school are somehow better people, right? They have like more value than the people that went to this other school, right? And that, you know, the people that dropped out of high school did so because of some kind of moral deficiency, right? Like, you know, they couldn't do it. They couldn't cut it. Whereas the people that went to the elite school, like, you know, these are the people that we should be celebrating and holding up. That's problematic, right? Like it's problematic when they're babies. It's problematic when they're elementary school students. And it's problematic when they're college students and adults, right? And we should name it as problematic. We're right in identifying it as problematic among young kids, and we should not let this, you know, sort of smoke and mirrors of education's merit, you know, uh, creating apparatus disguise the fact that that is still exactly what we are doing. Does that make sense? Well, I think so. Where does this fall in what you're talking about in terms of really isn't what we want to teach or encourage for everyone is to do the best you can. Yeah. And that gets back to the self-actualization logic, right? Um, It it doesn't matter how you compare to anybody if you're doing the best you can. Right. And so I think that's like very much the language of the world that I grew up in. But I think even that can be a little bit of a merit-based trap, right? Because <laughs> um, then, like, then you're measuring people based on like, but I think you could be better. Like, I think you could be doing better, which is like super toxic, right? Like, I think, like, but I think it is a healthy corrective to like freeing people from the comparisons to each other is healthy. Locking them into comparing themselves to themselves is maybe not healthy, right? Like, insofar as we still have an idea of like what the best they can is, right? And so it's like, yes, but like you could have been some elite signifier, like, you know, you could have been a member of an elite profession, right? And instead you chose to do something that society views as less valuable, right? You know, this is a point we make in in the book that, that we just finished writing is certainly creating a broader definition of what success looks like has to be part of how we move forward, right? So that when we say, you know, you're doing the best you can, you're becoming your best self, we don't want to prescribe what that best self looks like, right? We want to give the power to decide who do you want to be to, you know, to people. And this is very American, right? Not very foreign to how I grew up thinking, but I do think, you know, saying, you know, we don't want to be prescriptive and say there's only one way to be successful Uh, because once there's only one way to be successful then people are locked in some kind of competition to be successful in that way and by saying there are multiple ways to be successful now people are locked into like different competitions right which is still not great but i think it's better i think it moves us closer to the world that we want to live in professor thank you thank you for your time and more will be revealed i appreciate it thanks so much for having me Thank you again to UCI sociology professor Andrew Penner for his challenging, provocative, and confrontive research on inclusiveness and education. I would also like to thank him for his cherub-like honesty, his calm openness, and his loving share about his brother Daniel. I look forward to our paths crossing again, Professor Penner. You've been listening to UCI Conversations where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters right here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Today's show and any of my past shows are always available on my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. And comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. 
I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening, happy trails, and go, 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 Ukraine. You are amazing the world. So long, everybody.